Welcome to Split Happens, the Divorce Down Under podcast where we talk about anything and everything family law related. Welcome to Split Happens, a Divorce Down Under podcast where Liza and I, Alex, talk about anything family law related and today we have... uh, selected the law, strangely, and by that I mean we're going to have a chat about what are the courts involved, what are the actual laws that we talk about, where does it come from, and some of the processes involved. So, Liza, over to you, what is the overarching piece of legislation, Act of Parliament, that we live and breathe every day? The Family Law Act, 1975. Is this that's what I feel like I'm on. That's right. And what date did that take effect from? No. No. Um, so that's the main act that we, us family lawyers, um, talk about. When we're talking about an act or we're saying the law is this or the courts have the power to do that, um, all of their powers stem from um, the legislation called the Family Law Act. And it's been around for a very long time. We've had some amendments along the way. I'm not going to bore you going through all those sorts of amendments. But, Please don't. But essentially it covers anything from you know parenting matters, property matters and divorce and a few other bits and pieces that are um, more niche sort of areas. So all the things that if people are unfortunately facing a family law situation of some sort, that's the act that's going to cover what's happening in their case. That's so right. who gets what property and who looks after the children and when can I get a divorce? from this crazy person I've been married to. So, we've got we've got the Family Law Act. Now, our, our courts changed, didn't they, a couple of years ago? Well, they, it, it was, what, what's the French say? Plus a chance, c'est la même chose. So everything changed, but kind of nothing changed as well. That's right. It was the, well, we've had, we've had a few changes. We've we had have. the Family Court, and because when I started, we had the Federal Magistrates Court. Yep. And then we had the Federal Circuit Court. And now we have the F and C court, which Oops. is which is called. <laughs> they were all called that, aren't they? Yeah, the um, Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia. So they've combined the two courts. That really rolls off the tongue beautifully, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. That's why I call it the F and C court. The F and C, F C F C O A. Yeah, see, there's, there's just too many. There's too many F's and C's on that. On there are in too that many court. F and C's in the in the court. In the courts, right? Um, moving on from the lawyers, however. And not our honourable brethren on the bench. No, we would never say a bad word about them. But the courts these days, though, because we used to have, as you say, I mean, this only changed in 2021, didn't it? It was the Family Court and the Federal Circuit Court. And yes. they, they were squashed together because, you know, the government knows best and they're always looking after our best interests and thought of it would course. be very helpful. So they put those two courts together and said, we now just have the one court. And then they promptly divided the court again. <laughs> Back to... Um, now it's now we have a div- division one and a division two. So you might hear your lawyer talking about a div one or a div two. That's essentially saying div one is like the old family court and div two, let's guess what that is, the federal circuit court. Uh, it's the old... And what's the difference between division one and division two? I mean, just roughly speaking. Oh, div- well, division one will do a lot more of the um, complex matters. Okay. Well, what do you mean by complex in uh, that context? Complicated property matters and high high net worth property matters, as well as complex parenting where there's um, serious allegations of sexual abuse, things right. like that. 
All right. So the point, the really pointy things that can take quite a long time in front of a judge. That's right. And also they also, um, also take care of the appellate division now as well. Because Wait, so, so those non-lawyers that might be listening, if there are any any listeners at all, that is. There's, um, two. We, there's two. We've got two. Two listeners. Hi. Hi, two people over wherever you are. I think it was in the States for some bizarre reason. So um, welcome on board to uh, Split Happens, the Divorce Down Under podcast <laughs> for our two American listeners. Um, as far as Division 2 is concerned, then, that deals with nothing to do with the appeal courts. And that's what you're saying about appellate that's courts. Right. That's That's the... Um, the, the relatively sort of straightforward, shorter trials, and then Div 1 deals with, Division 1 deals with more complex matters, and then above Division 1, you, you, you talked about appellate courts. Well, it's the, it's the appellate, it's not really another division, it's still within Division 1. I, I don't even know how they break it up. I don't the, think the, anyone knows how they break it up just yet. But on it's a case-by-case thing. It sits, it sits in there somewhere amongst Div 1. Is they, they, they multiple judges from the Div 1 then sit as an appeal court yeah, effectively. Which is, so you if know, you get a bad dis- a duff decision out of Div Div 2, you might go to Div 1 for an appeal, and a duff decision correct. out of Div 1, you'll go to Div 1's appellate division, which is multiple judges sitting deciding right. the, you have the, the errors court. of law. Yeah, okay, the full court, yeah. Okay, so that's our primary court that we you know, resolve things in. That we respect oh, and, uh, and we, we have our and ultimate we attempt duty. to resolve things in and attempt not to go there, in fact. I mean, That's right. First duty to the clients, try and keep them away from the doors of the court because once you're in, you know, it's a revolving door that you don't really get to come out of again and without a judge deciding your future or you, know, you and the other side having to agree something that you might not want. But there are other courts that we deal with, though, as well, aren't there, in our, in our universe of family law, like state courts sometimes. We do, um, and there's... Of course, well, there's the domestic violence courts, which are state-based courts. Um, so you've got your magistrates' courts and your local courts. You often have, as well, in some places, in in some instances, you may go to state-based courts if you've got a somewhat um, complex matter that overlaps with another area of law. So, for example, you might have a a dispute that involves a, a property. Um, and there may be principles of equity, um, equitable relief that's been sought. So you might need to go for go to the Supreme Court. That for sounds that. like I'd need to go to a pharmacist to get something with equitable relief. Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, um, it's paracetamol doesn't fix it. Hmm. But in terms of, it, it may be that you've got husband wife owner property, and then you have a third party who's got husband's mother. So mother-in-law right. has another share in the property. Yeah. And there may be injunct- there may be some claims in relation to um, whether or not she's entitled to her one-third share or what share she's entitled to. So she might dance off to court if she perceives that, you know, her, her son and daughter-in-law are going That's their separate right. ways. She might jump on and 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 often the case is that um, that parties will start matters in a, in a state-based court because the family-based courts, the F&C court, <laughs> that will con- that usually deals with parties to the marriage. And it does deal with third parties, but a lot of people think that they're going to get a better result, um, particularly if you can keep the family lawyers away from, um, their, from, from the case as much as possible and deal with it on principles of equity rather than the family law principles. Right, because there's a slightly broader brush approach taken by the Family Law Act cases That's that right. are dealt with by the FCFCOA, as opposed to a state court that might apply more what we would call black letter law. 
They so. would. And But what often happens, though, is that a lot of the judges in the state-based courts, they end up, uh, in, in most, of my, most of my cases, that have been commenced in the state-based court, once they find out that there's a marital dispute, they don't want to touch it. Uh, they flick it over to the back over to the federal circuit and family court in any event. So because that it's the proper jurisdiction really when it's dealing with those relationship property issues, it needs to be dealt with there. It is, but um, one of the things that us family lawyers have to be aware of is knowing the powers of those courts and understanding what what capacity, what jurisdiction that they that they hold in respect of each of the issues that we face for our, for our clients, and being able to understand well. Just because it's in the state-based court, you can choose whether or not it's going to stay there or it may be better for your client to flick it back over to the Federal Circuit Family Court. Mm. So I guess that's a case-by-case decision, it isn't is. it? You know, Because you'll know what the nature of the property is. But in most cases that we encounter, um, you will be using the Federal Circuit and Family Court if you have to go to court at all. That's right. Um, and, and, of course, it, it is often the case that we'll resolve cases for people and orders, court orders will be made, but without anybody ever going near a court because it can be done all on the papers through a process called uh, consent orders. And actually, uh, the, the court's website, the, the new court's website, which is fcfcoa.gov.au, actually has some really quite helpful material um, for a government website. It's got all of the forms. It's got some fairly helpful guides and some how-tos. So some people can... If they can reach an agreement with their ex-partner, they can just follow the do-it-yourself kit type approach that's available there, and that can work out quite well. Well, um, I've looked at it um, fairly, I, and I continue to look at it fairly recently because I, I find that a lot of the time, particularly if, if parties are wanting just to file a joint divorce application, um, it's so much easier for me to refer the party to the website because. It is very straightforward. They have these very useful kits that yep. are available to download and it d- they just talk you through the process. Um, so it's actually quite a helpful resource. It is, actually. Um, compared to how, it, I mean, a few years ago it was a little bit clunky. Um, unlike a lot of websites, it's really improved enormously. It's very accessible. So I, I recommend if you are going through that that process to have a look at that. There's some good resources and some good sort of publications and guidance books on there as well. So let's let's go back and think about who's in the court then. Um, who are the people that we might encounter, apart from you know, lovely lawyers such as yourself? Um, who might we see? We've got the parties, the people whose lives are being affected by the decisions. That's right. So you've got applicants and respondents in, in the Federal Circuit and Family Court. Um, in the state base, you've got plaintiffs and defendants a lot of the time. So in... And you've got the applicant is whoever has filed the application and the respondent is the, the party who's going to be responding to it. Um, and you can often have third parties that which we'll address one t- an, at a later episode. But um, they're your main two, what I would call the front runners. Yep. Um, they're the ones that are mostly affected by whatever the decision is and uh, they're your, the clients. and the, So they're the ones who are... Um, that's the divorcing couple the divorcing or the, the separated couple. people. Yeah. That's right. And what about the court officers? So there, you know, there are plenty of registrars that work in the courts. That's right. So we've got, we got a lot of registrars and I think the courts put on an enormous amount recently, presumably to deal with a bit of the backlog because you may recall, I think it was like 12 months ago, it was just an absolute schmozzle trying to get consent orders approved 
um, by the court. There was a three-month wait time between you'd file the application for the consent order and and the registrar wouldn't even be looking at it for at least three months before. Just the sheer volume of work that they're having to get through. That's right. And And these are parties that have agreed on on their... um, They haven't even needed any court intervention as such. They just need an order. So they've put on a number of registrars and registrars can take a number... variety of different roles and um, I collectively call them registrars. They probably don't like me saying that, particularly the senior judicial registrars would probably prefer that I call them senior judicial registrar. Because it's a quasi-judicial role then. Uh, The senior judicial registrars, they have got uh, quite a lot of powers to make orders even uh, on on a contested basis and an interim basis. They do. So if we start more at the bottom um, and work our way up to the top... You've got your registrars and, and your de- deputy registrars are the ones, but they don't really have much power at all. They and sort of do the uncontested divorce yeah, applications, so, that sort of thing. And and they don't even have the power to order, um, to reserve costs or order costs. There's, there's no power for them to make any decision, really, unless it's by agreement. So it's agreement decisions and it's sort of directions as to where this case is to head to next. Yeah. That's sort of so their role. And if you But it's a massively important role when you think about the, the divorce applications and all the consent orders. I mean, we're sending clients off to go and either onto the website or getting us to help them out with that. Those deputy registrars, they get through a huge amount of volume of work for the They court. do. And just speaking about the consent orders, the, what the what this deputy registrar will do or the registrar, whoever is, is that's going to be approving or or looking at that consent order is that they will um, do that in in their chambers, in their room. You don't have to go to court for that. So it's not like you have to appear before a registrar to do that. For the divorce list, if you have to appear, then yes, you will have to appear before the registrar. Um, But again, as I said, their powers are very, very limited and they've only got the power to maybe get some substituted service orders and things like that. So if you can't serve someone, then they can make some uh, procedural orders in but, place. So but if then you think we about more procedural powers yeah. that they've got... So to about c- directing people to exchange pieces of paper, disclosure and things like that, That's and compliance right. with the rules, really, and just enforcing those obligations upon people yeah. that they've already got. They're very, very limited, though. And, and the judicial registrars, are a, they're a step up from are. there and they have more powers to make decisions when people don't necessarily agree. And then senior judicial registrars have quite a suite of powers these days. Yes, they do. They, they're, as you said before, they're quasi-judicial in terms of um, the ability for them to... They can make or break your case. So you really don't want to yeah. get your have your senior judicial registrar offside. To all intents and purposes, they act as a judge on an interlocutory, ghastly word I know, but you know, on an interim the, basis, yeah. you know, for those on the way, you know, a case within a case type cases, that'll be your senior judicial registrar and they're effectively a judge and they're going to be a very experienced family lawyer. Well, um, the, there's, such, a, there's uh, such an importance to that role because that can, as I said to you, make or break your case. Say, for example, you're wanting an injunction you're wanting to stop um, your husband from trading or from dispersing funds that have come into a company account which um, you're, you've got an interest in, you you really need that senior judicial, re- judicial registrar to grant that injunction. Otherwise, those funds are gone. And that depletes the property pool and therefore when it gets to a trial, if those funds are gone, you can't get blood out of a stone. And yeah. so if it's the case that you've got 
you know, that money, the, the, the trial judge who hears it will do their best to try and compensate. But if the money is just not there anymore, what are you going to do? So it's really important to take that action and have the right... Get your case presented as well as you can in front of that senior judicial registrar so they'll make the orders you need. Because I think they also have the power to dismiss proceedings. They do, if if you don't comply. If you don't comply and and if your case is really poorly put to the court, that senior judicial registrar might think you're wasting everybody's time, the case is over, go away, and you'd have to start all over again Mm. and plead it properly this time. Arben Legal is proud to sponsor Split Happens. You will be in safe hands with Arben Legal. For all your family law needs, call us on 07 or visit our website at arbenlegal.com.au. So those are, the, those are our sort of us, our registrars in the courts. So move from registrars then we have the two divisions uh you know division one division two and those are judges judges in in division two yeah and then you got justices in division one so the justices are the more senior judge they are okay and they obviously deal with div one cases which are the complex long trials maybe issues to do with abuse maybe issues to do with extremely complicated financial affairs things like that yeah and because you'll often start off start off in Division 2 and once it's been triaged and you go through that process, if the case requires it, they may flick it up to Division 1 I for think you, you had one this week, I yesterday, did. wasn't yesterday. it? Yesterday, yeah. yeah. So um, we were ready for trial and the trial judge who was meant to hear it said, no, this matter needs to go up to Division 1. So away we go. We'll find out a bit more in a couple of weeks, I guess. As to who's going to be who's your eventual judge and, or justice, right. as justice, as it should be. Justice, it will yeah. be. Yeah. Now, it's not just judges and justices and registrars, senior, senior, senior judicial registrars and the like. There are other people, aren't there? People are called family consultants. Yes, the, you've got um, the family, family report writers, family consultants, things like that, who work with the court. And they are those people who... Um, will basically try and assess and give the court some guidance as to what to do in relation to the children, particularly in, in parenting matters. Um, I'm yet to see a family consultant in a in a property matter, although sometimes I, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> with all the the emotions that run run high. Do you know that's a, sorts of a really interesting idea having a family report writer for a property matter? Well, you <laughs> know, you can sort of get to the underlying issues a little bit more, perhaps. But they're uh, and the recommendations could be. Yeah, yeah. Like he definitely, definitely does need all that extra money for his, yeah, he you know, does. his model train collection or whatever <laughs> it might be. Okay. So, in terms of the social, they're, they're basically social workers or counsellors. Some um, are qualified psychologists and psychiatrists, and they will report back to the court mainly and to give them give the court some guidance on what to do with the children. But the, the unique part about those people, those family consultants, family report writers, they are all approved by the Attorney General's office. So even if they're in private practice, they have effectively like you know the badge from the AG's office saying you're an authorised person to deliver a report which is an independent piece of evidence that goes before the judge or the justice before a final hearing. Yeah, they've got to be properly qualified and um, go through that, that process. Okay. Now, you mentioned a minute ago psychologists, and we obviously, 
working in this field, we encounter people who are going through some very turbulent emotional times and very often it's uh, we encounter clients who are either receiving psychological or even psychiatric help sometimes and they become a big part in these cases. The, you know, the importance of somebody just maintaining the treatment for their own mental well-being. Um, we live fortunately in a world these days where you know, attending to your mental health needs is not seen as a, as a bad thing, it's seen as a good thing. It doesn't have the stigma that might have been attached to it three or four decades ago. Definitely not. And so engaging with, uh, you know, a psychological pathway to give yourself better tools and be able to cope better with, you know, the the downsides of a relationship breakdown, whether it's interpersonally or with you and your children, it's a really positive step. One of the biggest referrals that I will often make um, to my client is is for them to actually go and see someone, a counsellor or psychologist or someone like that, so that they can get assistance with co-parenting and dealing with how to co-parent effectively and dealing with that personality of the person that you thought you once knew or that you no longer have any feelings for. or um, Because that in itself is actually quite a tricky thing to do. There's That's for the, the client's personal side of things, but there's also from a... Um, a case preparation side of things too. You might have a client who is quite fragile emotionally and very vulnerable um, and sometimes they may need some assistance because the process, the courts processes themselves, they take a long time, they can mm. be very draining. The time is a big factor sometimes for people. It takes. It can seem like it takes forever to get a case resolved. Oh, look, and it's, you know, I realise that the courts are busy and there are, the, the court list lately, I get them every day and my mind is blown just with the number of people that are going through court at the moment, particularly when there are all those other options. So you can just imagine how many other people aren't even in the system. That's right. All the pe- all those cases that we're running that nobody's filed any proceedings and we're trying frantically to keep people well, away from court. Well, you know, majority of our cases are not in court. So it's it's just mind-blowing. But in terms of... Getting, the, getting that client prepared to deal with that process and to deal with and coming to terms with the fact that if you're at that stage where you are asking for the court's assistance, that judge, whether it be a judge or a justice, whichever division you're in, is going to make a decision and you're going to have to be able to live with it. So sometimes it does help to actually have that assistance lined up, ready to go, start prepping you for... Mm that acceptance stage of this whole process because the mental readiness isn't it for whatever outcome might be and and being in a position to accept it and move forward with your life with that so yeah psychologists are increasingly important in in what we do and some of the counseling services i know know that you and i both refer and and so do our colleagues people onto particular psychologists or to counseling services and sometimes it can be a very difficult emotional case especially with the parenting matters where there's been a real disconnect. Uh, there has been a long time that's gone past with parents not seeing children or they've been withheld for whatever appropriate or inappropriate reason. And then about getting those kids back into that person's life, that can take some time and some laddering and some structure around how that reintegration happens. And the psychologists are usually the very best people to help with that in a safe space for people without lawyers being necessarily involved in all of those sessions. It's not important. So, well, that was that was sort of a little bit of um, around the the family consultants and psychology. There are um, we're talking about who's who in the zoo as far as the court system is concerned and the family law system. We've then got uh, other types of experts. So, people like accountants, they can be drawn into this this whole mix, can't they? So, what would 
What would a forensic accountant do or a court expert appointed accountant do? Well, they'll uh, examine the books of um, particularly a party's business um, if there is an issue about trying to ascertain the value of that of the business because the business um, does get does form part of the property pool, um, even though it might be in the name of a company, particularly if that party is a shareholder and or director of the company, then those sorts of things they're going, you're going to need to have a value of that business. So before a court can make an order about I'm going to divide up the property and you keep that business, you'll keep the house, you've got to know how much the business is worth. Yeah, and sometimes you might have, um, you know, parties have structured their affairs for a particular reason or a particular way over the years. And Usually to pay as little tax as possible. Well, that's where I was going with because a lot of the time there are huge tax consequences for when the parties split. So they may have developed some family trusts and they may have... um, created a number of different mechanisms mm. for get to getting out of their so tax arrangements. There's another expert needed there, so and that might be an interpersonal expert. Like You go and get your tax advice. You'll have a forensic accountant that might value the business on behalf of the court, so to speak. They're appointed by a court order for the parties. But separately, it's usually great advice to give to somebody where there's a business Go and get some tax advice about the possible consequences of you know option A, option B, or option C as to what might happen, so that you can plan for that. Well, that's right, and the effect of any orders. So when you when before I um, often when I have a client who has said, "Oh, I've come up with an agreement. Uh, <laughs> this is what we've decided to do," and I look at it and I think, "Okay, right." My first my my first thought is, "What's the tax man going to think of this?" Yeah, you know. When parties separate and they can enter into a consent order or a binding financial agreement, there's often a lot of exemptions and stuff that do apply. Yeah, stamp duty on real estate is one, isn't it? Yeah. It's a massive one sometimes. But a lot of the time, and, you, and you'll also get the CGT, capital gains tax, rollover relief. Um, but having said that, you're still, there's still um, income tax penalties and there's still things like um, PAYG tax that has been unpaid in a business and there might be liabilities that are, at- are attached to a party. And, and if husband and wife are directors, for example, it happens a lot of the time, yeah. those directors could be liable. That's right. And you can't just necessarily go, oh, okay, I'm just going to transfer these liabilities to you know, to mm. my husband here because the tax man says, oh, okay, maybe. Or I'll just, you know, he can indemnify you, but that's about it. Either you pay it up front now or... No, you're still on the hook for it. So it's really um, – you should get advice before you agree on anything that's – Sign nothing, get advice. It's all, I mean, that's always yeah. good advice in itself. But certainly, I mean, we as you know, as family lawyers, we, we don't give le- – sorry, we, we don't give financial, we don't give tax advice, but no. we very often say – Go and get go it. Go and get it and, yep. and get it quickly because we don't want to frame or create, you know, a series of orders that might get signed – if it's going to plummet you into you know, a, a, you know a, f- a far worse financial position than you could otherwise be. So get that financial, get that tax advice, get that accounting uh, accountant of yours sort of looking into the consequences for you. Um, there's, an, there's another expert I was going to mention briefly, which is, um, of course, in a, there's no typical family law case, but very often there is a piece of real estate or maybe two pieces of real estate involved. And I often see people saying, oh, it's okay, you know, you know, Bob, my friendly real estate agent came around, did, a, did an appraisal, and here it is. 
the courts aren't going to be beloved of that, are they? No, you'll probably need a formal valuation and it should be a joint valuation. So done under the rules of the court. They've been provided with the little section that says that they're a proper expert. They've got their basis upon which they can um, give this opinion. And it's a shared cost then, isn't it? It is. Depending upon the size of the real estate, I mean, you could be looking at anything from a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars, depending yeah, upon what's involved. A lot, of, what's a lot involved. of the ones that I seem to come across are around about the fifteen hundred bucks. Yeah, and yeah, but shared that between the two parties, it's not actually a huge cost. Yeah, yeah. Um, but another another expert that I often will use, and that's brokers. Um, and I know it's unusual to call them an expert, but um, a well, lot of a lot of brokers would think they're experts. <laughs> Um, and a lot of people who are the anti-brokers of the world will probably think, no, that's they're far from it. But realistically, from a practical point of view, if you're deciding whether or not you're you know, going into a, a mediation or a court-ordered conciliation conference mm. and you're coming up with a proposal that you want to buy um, your wife out, well, you're going to need to know if you can afford it first. Yeah. And so one of the first things you really should be doing is going and seeing a broker and seeing what can you actually afford. What's is my it, borrowing capacity? Yeah, you know, and not just your borrowing capacity, but also you, what can you service that loan based on your income? It's a double-edged sword. Um, we had a case once and you know they wanted to put forward this position that they could afford all this money to pay the other party out. Now... Um, that's all very well and good, but they also wanted to put forward a position that, based on their tax return, um, they couldn't afford to pay my, you know, pay the other party the child support. So it, you know, they wanted to, on the one hand, to show that they could afford to pay the other party out and say, oh no, 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 it's all okay. So they want to increase their income for that, but then on the on the flip side, they want to sh- downplay their tax return so that they have less child support to pay. So it is. It's mm, a tricky one. A, it is a tricky one. But and and again, you know, we, we are going to say to people, get financial, tax, right. and accounting advice before you commit to these things. We can tell you whether or not it's likely to uh, be approved by a court. We can give you legal advice around the framework of what's what it says in the Family Law Act and what the cases are decided. But you could have the same deal cut in two different ways, and one of them sees you with a massive tax bill, and the other one doesn't. So mm. that's super important, isn't it? Speaking of super, it just jogged my memory, but that's another that's another area that I think that parties um, frequently overlook when it ter- when it comes to getting that uh, independent advice. Um, speaking to their financial advisor or an accountant or someone who's in, from that superannuation field is really really important because you might have a client who has um, a large superannuation portfolio, and it might be say a self managed super fund. Heaven help us from those. Yeah, well, from a family lawyer's point of view, but and and not much else, you know. How is how is that party going to be able to compensate the other party? Well, it's not compensation, but you know, how are yeah, they going how to how are we going to divide divide that? that? And you know, you might have dad has a huge super portfolio in a um, in a self managed super fund, and mum hasn't got much, but mum's you know needing to get a, a decent share of this property pool. Um, how do we do that? I mean, uh, that, I mean that's on a case by case because you've got to look at the trust deeds and all of those sorts of things. But the superannuation is probably it's a topic all on its own. It is, isn't and, it? And when we'll save that for a day when it when it's pouring outside and we have run out of but all we'll other things that, to talk. But, about. 
<laughs> there, if you if you do want some super advice, um, and particularly with how it's going to affect your family law matter, um, you know, you, there's there's details um, on our Facebook page that you can contact us anyway about that sort of stuff. But we're going to get to that one in another episode. We will. And, yeah, again, the super advice is to get some advice about super. That's exactly right. Sorry, cheesy. Okay, so those are who's who in the family law zoo to some extent. We have lawyers, we have judges, we have registrars, we have justices, we have um, chief justices, and we have appeal judges and things like that. We have the parties which are applicants, respondents, co-respondents, third, fourth, fifth respondents, where you're dragging in third parties. And if we go into the state courts, we have plaintiffs and we have defendants. And the state courts in, well, in Queensland, where we are right now, it's magistrates' courts, it's district courts, and it's the Supreme Court. And different states and territories have slightly different names, but broadly speaking, it's on on that three-tier level. So, look, that's a, a little chat about who's who in the family law zoo. So I think we might leave it there for today. And thanks very much for listening to... Split Happens. Thanks for listening to Split Happens, the Divorce Down Under podcast. If you want to hear more of our episodes, you'll find us wherever you find your podcasts on all good podcasts.